The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Once again, <clears throat> take a moment to stretch up and settle in. And riding on the momentum of the work we've done before, bring your attention to the breathing process. We know that the attention will wander, gently return. To the best of your ability, give permission for non-breath to arise and pass to come and go in the background. That's your equanimity piece. And with regards to the focus on the breath itself, try to detect as much sensory detail as you can. Try to be clearly aware of the beginning, middle, and end of the in-breath. The beginning, middle, and end of the out-breath. At least that much clarity. If possible, an even higher resolution Perhaps you'll be able to detect tiny fluctuations in the breath sensation throughout the whole sweep of the in and out breath. Perhaps even a sequence of discernible risings and passings at a very high level of clarity. The solidity of an experience breaks down into a flow of energy. You're so engaged in the knowing that there's no time to fixate the knowing into a something, which might be described as escaping into an experience. This is the clarity dimension of mindfulness. The concentration stabilizes your attention. The equanimity allows things to flow in the background. And the clarity is a kind of knowing the object to death. So engaged in the activity of knowing, meaning sensing, that there's no time to fixate the thing known into a thing. So it becomes a flow of energy 
You may not be able to have that degree of sensory clarity at this time. That's okay. But it's something that can gradually be worked towards. It can happen locally at the tip of your nose. It could happen globally over your whole body or even all of all, over all of sensory experience. Any range is fine.
Okay, good. <clears throat> Take a couple minutes. If there's any other questions, comments, reports, and so forth, we can, uh, we can talk a bit. You used a couple of phrases that got my attention. You, you talked about following the breath all the way to, to, to Nibbana. And you talked about um, uh, going back to the source. And I've been wondering how you might, what you might say about that as an end point or whatever it was that you were aiming at. If you could say some more about... Uh, yes. So I talked about uh, taking the breath to nirvana <laughs> and uh, about um, uh, an return to the source. Now, return to the source is just my private poetry language. Um, doesn't mean anything more than just a way of saying something. <laughs> um, so... Uh, by nirvana means different things in different contexts. Um, uh, strictly speaking, it's uh, uh, complete enlightenment. Okay, that's that's a pretty uh, far off goal. Okay, um, but the first tastes of enlightenment, which uh, are um, uh, cessation experiences, brief experiences of cessation. Um, that kind of thing is actually feasible for the average, um, the average meditator. So when I when I was saying things like uh, that that kind of thing, I was talking about it, uh, essentially what happens to an ordinary experience um, when you bring maximal completeness to that experience. So that was not rigorous Buddhist scholastic language that I was using. That was more my own personal poetic language. Uh, <laughs> so I mentioned that uh, the way I like to use words... Um, the word completeness, the adjective, uh, measures how much concentration, clarity, and equanimity you have uh, with regards to a given experience. So there is a certain maximum um, completeness. And, and that can happen with any sensory experience. When um, uh, and we gradually work our way up to uh, being able to at least occasionally have maximally complete experiences. Now, once again, I have to apologize. This is one person's private language. One of the things I've noticed is that we teachers tend to develop our own private languages and. That's a, that's good because you want to you want to have an experience uh, to talk about, but then when you have an experience to talk about, you have the struggle of how am I going to talk about it, 
and different people are going to uh, come up with different languaging. So this is just one person's idiosyncratic language, not to be taken to mean anything else than that. Um, so you could take any given experience, big or small, and there's a certain cutoff point, a certain critical mass of concentration, clarity, and equanimity. And once you exceed that critical mass, that ordinary experience becomes extraordinary. Um, and when I was talking about an experience of return to the source or nirvana, okay, I didn't mean like complete and total enlightenment, uh, you're an arhat, okay. I meant your first taste of um, uh, total mindfulness with something. So once you pass the critical point, uh, the critical value of completeness, the way you know it is that ordinary experiences become extraordinary. In what way? Well, therein lies the rub. Uh, can I describe to you in detail uh, how, in what way it's, uh, in what way it's extraordinary? Sure. Will it make a whole lot of sense? Well, that's a that's another issue. Um, the way you know that you have reached maximum completeness with any given experience, however big or small, including the small experience at the tip of your nose or the big experience of your entire mind and body, the way you know is that it's paradoxical. It is both uh, ma maximally sensorially rich um, and at the same time um, minimally a thing anymore. So it's todo y nada. It's everything and nothing as a single thing, as a single experience. Now, I know that sounds very strange, but um, I can give you, uh, I can give you a, an easy-to-follow example with walking, and then you can... Um, you can... Um, extrapolate upon this example to any experience, including breath or the sense of self. <laughs> so let's say I want to I be mindful of my walking. And let's say that each step takes one second. Um, and so when I move the right foot, I clearly know right foot. When I move left foot, I clearly know left foot. So how many clear moments of perception are there per second right now uh, in, that, in that formulation? There's one clear moment of perception per second. Let's say I want to have better, a more complete experience of walking. So I will be aware of the beginning, middle, and end of the... Uh, I'll be aware of a lift, swing, and a tread on my right foot lift, swing, tread on my left foot. So now how many, mo how many clear awarenesses are there per second? There are three. So it's a sensorially a more complete experience. Now let's say that I can be aware of the beginning, middle, and end of the lift, the beginning and middle and end of the swing, the beginning and middle and end of the tread. Okay, were you counting? How many per second is it? It's nine now. 
you see, if you have a background in math, you can guess what's the next number. What's the next number in this? 27, because it's powers of 3. This is a simplification. It could be powers of 10 or whatever you want. It's an exponential function um, in this particular modeling. Um, so each time you divide it finer, you're detecting more and more details. So there's more sensory clarity. So there's more sensory richness. Now, let's look at it from a different point of view, which is actually related to the equanimity piece. If I, um, uh, if I, um, if I'm going to be clearly aware in each second, then what's the longest period of time I can fixate any piece of that awareness? I have to be present for the next awareness in one second, right? So I can't hold anything longer than a second. If I do, I won't be able to be present in the next second. Now, if I have three clear awarenesses, what's the longest I can fixate or hold or coagulate or reify, which means thingify? What's the, what's the reify? It's just a fancy uh, Latin word to make a thing out of. So what's, what's the longest I can hold it if I have three clear awarenesses per second? Third of a second. Nine clear awarenesses, I can only hold it one-ninth of a second. The, the holding um, <clears throat> uh, measures the degree of fixation, so to speak. Um, now, somewhere between 27 and so 27 clear awarenesses, and what's the next number? 81, right? Uh, 3 to the 4th power. Somewhere between 27 clear awarenesses and, and 81 clear awarenesses, we will have saturated the conscious information processing channel for a person. That's, that's maximum information flow that can be consciously processed. Well, somewhere between 1 27th of a second and 1 80th of a second um, is the point at which, beyond which, nothing seems to exist in time anymore or space. Time and space collapse because your, uh, your, your, your interval to fixate the time-space volume of the experience is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So exactly at the point when it becomes maximally sensorially rich, it also becomes minimally sensorially something. And that's why the common word that's used in the Buddhist tradition is emptiness or nothingness. Now, if you... Uh, can have that experience with the breath or with walking or with anything, that's fantastic. Um, if you can have that with most things on a consistent basis in ordinary life, we'll say you're enlightened. That's feasible. That, that's, that's feasible. So... Um, 
Why do I call it a return to the source? Well, that's just my own private language. Um, Because um, the experience dissolves into vibratory and expansive contractive flow. Um, And a theme that in early Buddhism is called rising-passing, a rising-passing that becomes dominant. And then just the... But then you come to realize that to see clearly, clearly, clearly what happens in each moment of arising and what happens in each moment of passing. And you realize that each each arising... um, is exactly the same, and each passing is exactly the same. Um, And where things go to is where they come from. If you want to call it pure consciousness, that's more the Hindu model. There is the true self behind experience. If you want to call it emptiness and nothingness, that's the Buddhist model. There is no self behind experience. The intellectual formulations are exactly the opposite, but as far as I've ever been able to tell, the experience is identical, confusingly, annoyingly. But it can be described either way. Um, So it's just, the source is just nothing. But nothing is inherently unstable. And it polarizes. Taoists have the same thing. The Kabbalistic Judaism has the same thing. Chesed, Gvura, Tsimtsum, Wuji, Taiji. Similar formulations have been discovered many, many times. So anyway, that by the source, I just mean the nothing known to the mystics of all, of all traditions. Uh, and dis- described as whence we come and whither we return moment by moment, and also whence the surrounding scene arises and whither it returns. The self and the scene are born and die, born and die, time and space, born and die, moment by moment. Now, <clears throat> uh, so that's the kind of thing I was talking about. And you can have that in your breath, or in a breath sensation or a walking sensation. Um, Of course, if you have it in your breath enough times, it's going to reach out and grab everything. And then that's going to lead to a stream entry experience or state or something, a stage, I guess you'd say. So sorry for the weird personal language. (laughs) Yes, yeah, go ahead. I have a question about the method that you suggested we use in the last meditation. Um, awareness of the breath is the concentration, and then the other experiences arising is where equanimity is practiced. What I discovered was happening for me was I was aware of the breath, became aware of other experiences coming and going, but I have a habit of noting, and so I began to note the other experiences while I was trying to be aware of the breath. And I'm wondering if that is a useful or not a useful thing to do. Okay. 
if there's anything I love, it's clarifying stuff. <laughs> um, but that can become sort of tiresome, okay? Um, because it takes a little while to really to learn how to say what we mean. <laughs> um, so, noting is just an English word. Um, personally, I do not, this is just, once again, my private language. I do not use noting and labeling as synonyms. Okay? Uh, the labeling of a sensory event um, sound, thought, <laughs> rising, passing. That's a word uh, or a phrase sometimes that you would think to yourself or say out loud. I call that a label. The noting is, for me, something different. Um, the noting is a clear acknowledging and an intent experiencing of something, often in a rhythmic way. The label for me is an option within the apparatus of the noting that you can either do or not do. Uh, if you read my essay, What is Mindfulness? There's a whole chapter about noting. So, um, first of all, I think it's important to realize that, uh, it, that a mental label that you can note without necessarily making a mental label, at least in the way that I like to think about it. So I have to be sure that you understand that for me personally, noting and labeling are not synonyms. Once you understand that, I can ask you the question, um, were you noting other events or merely labeling them as a reminder to come back to your breath? Understanding that noting means an intention to fully experience as much as possible in that moment. I would say I, what I was doing was both. You were, times. you were. It was just like an awareness of an experience passing through, and other times I was searching for a label to call it precisely, and that felt like a distraction to me. It didn't feel like it was a skillful. Okay, so. Um, once again, different systems formulate things in different ways because they have their own internal consistency. So I always like to be crystal clear as to what my focus range is. And the focus range can be very broad or very narrow, but the only thing that I would intentionally note or label, either one, would be something in the focus range. So if the focus range is the breath and you want to note, you, you want to use the label in and out, okay, or rising, falling. Um, but personally, I would not note distractions because they're distractions. Now, of course, if you define your focus range to be everything, then you're going to note everything. So I just make that very clear distinction. Now, here's what's Here's what a lot of people do. They use the labeling in two different ways. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with this, but I think it is, given the, the deep theory that underlies Burmese mindfulness practice. Remember, noting 
is a, a product of 20th century Burma. It goes back to Mahasi Sayadaw. And he had some innovations, and he had a, a very definite way of thinking about how enlightenment arises through noting. So in that formulation, um, you, you are asked to penetrate the things that you note. Well, again, we have the agony of jargon. What the Burmese Sayadaws mean when they say penetrate the thing you note is exactly what Shinzen Yang means when he says try to have a complete experience of it. It's exactly the same thing. But they have their jargon. I have my jargon, and a bunch of other people have their jargon. Um, the metaphor that they give is it's like shoot, that, that mindfulness is satipatthana. Sati is the awareness. Patana is to thrust. You thrust your awareness into the object and it penetrates like an arrow and knows it down into the interstices for just a tiny second, which is referred to as kanika samadhi, or momentary high concentration. And this is a major innovation of the Mahasi method. So I think... Um, it's important to... Oh, so, so I was going to say, people use mental labels in one of two ways. A mental label is either something to help you note, which means to fully experience the thing that you're labeling, or a mental label is a reminder, oh, that's just a sound, get back to the breath. Oh, that's just a thought, get back to the breath. The, that use of labeling I call dismissory labeling as opposed to penetrative labeling. Now, you can do whatever you want to do because you now know, according to me, the right way to meditate. <laughs> However, in my formulation, if you label it, you're trying to know it. You're trying to have a complete experience of it. So, uh, if you want to extend your gochara, to be breath plus whatever else comes up, <laughs> then you could, you could do it that way. Or you can say, I'm just going to ignore that stuff and not label it even to dismiss it, but just stay with the breath. And these are all just strategies that work, work well or not well, depending on various circumstances. So was that a, did that address your, your question? Yeah, that's right. Great. I know you uh, warned us about this, but I found myself uh, very sleepy and dreaming some after lunch. And I wonder if you had some suggestions as to effective ways for dealing with sleepiness. Effective ways to dealing with sleepiness. Boy, I've never been asked that question before. <laughs> Or maybe I get asked that question every day of every retreat for the last 45 years. So I will give you the quick, the really quick answer, and then I'll give you the somewhat quick answer. Um, the really quick answer is to go to the internet and look up Shinzen Yang's blog called From Fuzz to Buzz. <laughs> That's the really quick answer. <laughs> Uh, now I'll give you the executive summary of what's in that blog, which is a 
which summarizes pretty much that 45 years of teaching experience. Okay, so here it is. It's going to come fast and furious, but hey, you know, you can, you can read the book if you uh, uh, don't remember all the details. So the way I like to think, this, this issue, of course, comes up over and over again for, for everyone. Um, so there is an objective side to sleepiness, and there's a sensory side to sleepiness. The objective side to sleepiness has two parts, loss of clarity and wilting of the posture. That's in the objective world. You've lost clarity and your posture is wilted. At the extreme, uh, your eyes close even though you're trying to keep them open. And at the extreme, you get what I call the Zen lurch. (laughs) Um, So we'll call that the objective side of sleepiness. Loss, Loss of loss of clarity and the wilting of the posture. With regards to the objective components, I would uh, uh, encourage an attitude of fight with that, fight against that. Over and over again, straighten the spine, force the eyes open if need be, and, um, and struggle to get back to some semblance of clarity And at some point, it's going to feel like you've got two battleships hanging on your eyelids, okay? Upandita, who some of you may have heard of, who's sort of the grand old man of of Burmese uh, Mahasi Vipassana, his metaphor was uh, that the sleepiness is like, it's like a bat that just hangs there upside down, you know, a disgusting, it's just there, and it just won't move. <laughs> okay, so um, over and over again, you straighten your spine a thousand times, 10,000 times. You just fight against it. You try to reestablish posture. You force your eyes open over and over and over again. Um, if that's all you can do, that's already a powerful training. Um, If, in addition to constantly working with the posture, forcing your eyes open, straightening the spine, settling in, stretch up, settle, if in addition to that you can have some degree of equanimity with your situation, that's also fantastic. (laughs) Okay? But, so with regards to the objective side, once again, loss of consciousness and the wilting of the posture, try to fight against that. It's hard to believe, but just like uh, lifting weights, um, you get stronger. You can develop clarity muscles by, by exercising. It's a sweaty workout, too, okay? It's hard work, but you can eventually improve your clarity muscles quite dramatically so that, in fact, even as you get sleepy, your, uh, your posture doesn't wilt, and you don't, you don't lose clarity. But it takes years. It actually takes years to develop those clarity muscles. Um, I'll tell you an interesting story um, by way of inspiration to show you that, in fact, you can, by fighting against the unconsciousness and by working with the posture, that you can dramatically change with time. So this is a story that... Um, took place way back before 
mindfulness was the hottest thing going everywhere. Okay, this is this took back place in the seventies, mid seventies. Uh, oh no, no, actually early eighties, very early eighties is when this happened. So. I had a little center in Los Angeles. Actually, there's at least one person in this room that remembers those days that was there. Uh, I had a little center in L.A. And we didn't have many students, just a handful of students. I had plenty of time on my hands. And um, one of, uh, this person came to the center, and he was an older person. And he was a, a psychiatrist. He was a bona fide doctor, an M.D. psychiatrist, that was interested in learning mindfulness. And as I say, this was at a time when that wasn't common, not common at all. Um, And I I was really invested that this guy be successful because I wanted to have, you know, it's like, oh, he's a psychiatrist, and if he gets mindfulness, that's going to be a big thing because, hey, I can remember reading books by psychiatrists in the 50s that purported that, uh, to, uh, to prove that Buddhist meditation was a form of a psycho, uh, a, a, a psychological illness, a delusion. So it's like, oh, here's somebody from the psychiatric establishment. There weren't many in those days. I really wanted this guy to be successful. But he had a problem. As soon as he would sit down, he would just go out. I mean instantly. And um, so, but he, he wanted to do it, but he just could not keep awake. He said he'd always had that sort of borderline narcolepsy, and there was also the aging factor and whatever. And he would just instantly go out. So I said, okay, how much do you charge for therapy? And he said something like $80 an hour or something like that. How often do you see your clients? Oh, a couple times a week. It was, you know, it's, it's like Freudian therapy, right? Uh, so I said, okay, I'm going to charge you $40, and we're going to make appointments just like you make, okay? And I'm going to be here for the next year, uh, once a week. So I, I normally, I mean, Buddhist teachers don't charge, but I knew... I knew that if I was going to commit to a year of being with this guy, I, uh, you know, I, 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 that, I needed to have some, something to motivate me to make that kind of commitment. So what I did is um, he would sit down and we'd start to meditate together. I'd observe him. And sure enough, in five seconds, this would happen. And I'd say, okay, Open your eyes and straighten your spine and now return to the technique. And then five seconds later, then open your eyes, straighten your spine, return to the technique. I was a human biofeedback device <laughs> watching his posture. Now, you know what you can get now? You can get a dealie to put on your ear on the internet. Have you seen this? When you're, what are they called? I, they, there's a cute name to it. But when... It's for driving a car. So to to, okay, it's when remember objective posture wilts. So as soon as your head inclines, it gives you an auditory signal to wake you up. Now in the old days, what Buddhist uh, meditators used to do, you can even see this in some of the old pictures of meditators. 
from the Tang Dynasty, they uh, would put a little weight on their head like this. And then if their posture wilted, it would whoops, fall into their lap and wake them up. Or there was the edgier version of that, literally the edgier version, which was to do it at the edge of a cliff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we do hear stories of that. Uh, um, so, long story short, by the end of that year, no more wilting. Okay, On his own, he could maintain uh, clarity indefinitely. And he said it was, he was so grateful because he said it was like someone had turned on a light in his mind that had never been there. And the whole world 24-7 was just brighter for him all the time. That was one year of straighten the spine, open your eyes. That was my only job for an hour a day, <laughs> or yeah, for an hour uh, a week with this guy. So, but that's a proof of principle that even if you're borderline narcoleptic and quite old, <laughs> if, you know, if you can strengthen those clarity muscles. So that's the objective side of, of working with sleepiness. There's the sensory side. There are uh, two different experiences sensorially that happen when we get sleepy. One is uncomfortable. There's a kind of yucky sensation. I get it like a yucky, tight sensation in my face. And there's this sort of excruciating, incipient yawniness in my chest and a sort of general yuck over my whole body. Um, and um, it, it's an uncomfortable sensation. Of course, being a body sensation, it doesn't have words. But if it had words to speak, uh, its message would be, uh, go horizontal, go unconscious, and I will go away. <laughs> now, that's an uncomfortable physical sensation. And just like pain, it's just a physical sensation. And like any sensation in the body, if you have a complete experience of it, it's going to break up into energy. And that's the ultimate recycling. Breaks that, that yucky sensation of sleepiness breaks up into energy, begins to flow, it begins to massage you, that it inflates you with a kind of vitality. Um, I personally know people... Um, personally, not like, oh, I've heard legends, you know, uh, in the caves of Tibet, blah, blah, blah. But this is like people, I like know, right, who have gone nine days without sleeping uh, with, uh, and actually without breaking posture. Uh, the mar- you can see them on the Internet, the Marathon Monks of Mount Hiei. And it's done in public view. There's no chicanery. Okay, A human does this. I've met them. I've talked to them. Privilege to do that. So you can break through. It takes a lot of practice. Um, One way that that happens is that the yucky sensations, the uncomfortable sensations, are equanimized enough and experienced completely enough that they sort of turn into a flow. But there's also some pleasant sensations associated with sleepiness. They're restful states. 
Each wave of sleepiness brings about a wave of feel rest, of relaxation in your body. That's why you lurch, because you lose muscle tone. But as the wave of, un- <coughs> as the wave of unconsciousness is coming, you can actually detect a subtle wave of physical relaxation that fills your whole body and sometimes also causes your eyes to defocus and your ears to defocus, creating a simultaneous see rest, hear rest, feel rest. And if you can tune into that, then the waves of, sleep, of, the, the waves of sleepiness actually drive you deeper and deeper into tranquility. And ego dormio sed cor meum vigilat in Latin it means I sleep but my heart waketh. This is what it's from the Bible but the Christian monks never got enough sleep. They had these canonical hours and they were constantly woken up and they had to go and chant and then get a few hours sleep then woken up again have to go do this, do that. And what they what they were trying to do is, it's, it means in Latin, I sleep but my heart waketh. You learn to re-engineer the experience of sleep into the experience of meditative absorption, which in Buddhism is called jhana, but in Catholicism is called infused contemplation. One way to get to those states is to re-engineer sleepiness. Because when you fall asleep, your consciousness dips below what's called the bhavanga sota, which is the, the borderline between the conscious and unconscious. Um, if you can pass that borderline with consciousness, instead of dropping into sleep, you drop into a, a, a jhana state. So you act, I, when I lived in the Zen temple in Japan, I used to think to myself, Zen meditation is a misnomer. There's no Zen meditation. There's just Zen staying awake because we were so sleep-deprived. And I thought, this isn't the middle way. This is bullshit. What, what, why do they... They never let us get enough sleep. Well, I didn't realize at the time, in retrospect, I now see what the idea was, but at the time, I didn't realize. What they were trying to do is force you to re-engineer sleepiness into a deep meditative state. And how you do that? Well, I just described to you in specific how you do that. And that's that. (laughs) Okay, let's take a little break and we will come back and continue. Just use the washrooms and so forth. Uh, Your discussion just now was very interesting. I had an experience that I've never really gotten an explanation 